Sambudasa <coughs> So today the Wesak, and it's very nice to see so many people coming to share this occasion. It's obviously, it has a lot of meaning still, thousands of years afterwards, because there's been a continuity of practice and inspiration, and many people, including yourselves, all taking part in that practice. You, you've got a feeling for what this is about. It's a very deep and meaningful practice that could bring a lot of joy a lot of deepening, a lot of real sense of integrity and uh, really facing up to life. Uh, It's not that easy and that comfortable, but it can be extremely joyful and extremely uh, strengthening experience, the practice of Dhamma. And, you know, as we go along with it, as we practice with it, at times we run out of steam, run out of motivation, we find ourselves frustrated, don't seem to be getting anywhere, what's the point anyway? And... uh, Often I find that really what helps to keep that alive is a sense of devotion, a sense of really offering, offering one's life to this, to this strange practice, this practice of mindfulness, awareness, checking in with and moderating your, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, restraining your impulses, you know, and a sense of devotion to that. Because there is a, even though it can be struggle at times, there is a beautiful result and sometimes the result takes a while to happen. But when you see it happening in people around you, and you recognize that every, you know, everyone who's practiced has been through all this, we have a sense of being part of a, of a deep uh, and very human uh, activity of purification, of realization, of uh, integrity. And suddenly you see it, really realize yourself be part of a Dhamma universe. And there's a, there's a love in that, tremendous love and a feeling of belonging and feeling this is worthy, this is truly noble. And one gets a sense of ongoing devotion to it. And I always used to not really understand what this word meant. You know, it's not a word that I find sits easily in my mind because I'm not a particularly faith-oriented person. I never had any real religious Upbringing. I'm still a bit suspicious of religion in general. Because <laughs> I'm, you know, rationalist and, and so forth. Uh, and I, I found I couldn't, you know, manage devotional practices and chanting was a bit difficult. And it seemed a bit too, too airy-fairy. Um, too, too about much ornamental, you know, and purely ritualistic. But uh, when, I, when I, so a lot of my own practice was driven by inquiry, investigation, 
into into my mind, into truth, into reality, and a sense of willpower, I guess, you know, kind of keep going with this, and determination, which themselves are, are good qualities, but uh, devotion really rounds it out, because it's only so far you can go with inquiring before you, you're fed up with inquiring. <laughs> so what? <laughs> it's only so far you can go with willpower before you think, oh, well, you know. But devotion, it's softer, has got a much more, it's got a long-lasting effect, you know, because sometimes you're in the mysteries of it all and the struggle of it all, and all you can ever do is just say, well, help. <laughs> Open yourself up to something bigger than your own mind and your own know-how and your own intellect and your own willpower, and you see, to the dumber I go for refuge, you know. Just I'll be with that, you know, a sense of really widening and opening beyond one's own resources. And so and I think this is really is what religion in its best sense really means. We, we recognize something much larger than our own apparent identity, our own ego, our own birth-death process, our own limited consciousness. And we have a sense of something wider that we can open into that receives us and, uh, and we're part of. Now this, of course, is just a a way of trying to express something that's very difficult to express, but it's definitely a, a feeling that can arise. And it's the faith element. Something bigger and better than where I am now. And then you might say that's the, it's the origin of the spiritual path, is that recognition, this isn't enough. There must be something bigger and better. There is something bigger and better for me, available for me. You know, and how do I get there? How do I find it? So, you know, in in the legends, and they, they are legends, because much of what we think we know about the Buddha is pretty much imagined. What they didn't make much out of his out of his life, you know, people weren't that interested in his life or interested in his teachings. But the legends are that he had these saw these four signs uh, that that kind of shaped things up for him, gave him a direction, and they're a sign of the old aging person person whose whose lifespan is dwindling his life force is dwindling whose physical prowess is getting less whose ability to manage and cope and is getting less you know aging not as strong not as fit not as beautiful as you were not in the prime anymore and recognize this happens to all of us hmm. so then the sense of the infatuation with youth and beauty and vigor becomes cooled because how long is this going to last for? Where is this going to take me? And then sickness, recognizing the sickness, seeing a sick person, someone incapable of managing, coughing, vomiting, not in command of their senses, seeing this happens to everyone. And looking at this, realizing, well, all this sense of vigor and health and all those kinds of things is a bit of a passing show, isn't it? You know, no one, the healthiest person in the world, who's lived on strained bilberry juice for their entire life, <laughs> never taken sugar, never eaten meat, never had coffee, never smoked a cigarette, never had a shot of whiskey, never done anything, still they're going to get to this stage. <laughs> no matter how pure it's been, you know. <laughs> Including me. Wow. And how rotten you feel when you're sick. You know, how your sense of yourself goes wonky and you feel incapable and you lose confidence when you're sick. 
Sometimes you get negative, moaning. You need other people to look after you. So all this kind of, oh, I'm, I've got it together, that, that, that sense of the ego starts to look a bit flimsy, doesn't it? And then he also saw a dead person, a dead body, which you don't see very much these days, and he realized what an incredible thing a dead body is. You know, if you've ever seen a dead body, many of you perhaps haven't seen a dead body, but they really are different from living bodies. You know, I mean, it, it, you'd, you'd think it wouldn't change that much, but when the life force is gone, you know, the, the energy is gone, the radiance is gone, and it's just really it's just a lump of meat. And it's extraordinary how you know you can pick an arm up and it just falls down. It's cold. It's just like a pork chop, you know. And uh, they really are dead. <laughs> There's nothing as dead as a dead human being. Yeah. I went to a, when I was in Tibet. I went to a sky burial, which is when they get the uh, bodies <clears throat> of people who've recently died and they take them out to a, a special place a star, like a, and then they, they put them on the ground the vultures come and take, eat them up and uh, so we went to see this as a kind of uh, meditative experience and so there's a, a particular ground where they do it and they have the, the men have butcher's aprons on because there are men there, and their job is essentially to, to, to start to cut into the body so that the body is, is opened up. You know? and, uh, and then I looked, looked around, there's this huge crowd of vultures on the hillside waiting, and there's men are trying to hold them back. And then they bring up, this little truck comes up, and they take the bodies out, put them on the ground, actually just throw them on the ground. And it just looks like you know, your mum and dad or your aunt having a sleep. And they just toss them on the ground, and these people slash them with knives, and the vultures descend, and this enormous kind of uh, torrent of birds, like uh, pigeons. You know, when you somebody standing with a bunch of breadcrumbs, these pigeons descend on them. This is vultures, and in ten minutes it's, they're gone. There's no nothing there, a few bones. And when you see this, I mean, when I say it, it's quite chilling, isn't it? When you see it. It just goes right to your nerve endings, you know. Wow, what was all that about, you know? What was this physical form about? With all the, you know, kind of washing it and cutting bit, you know, cutting the nails and doing the hair and making sure it, <laughs> it's vulture food. <laughs> And the vultures don't really mind, you know, whether <laughs> you cut your nails or not. <laughs> so what's all that about, you know? Wow. And, of course, <laughs> it can sound a bit grim because while the body's alive, you can do all kinds of interesting things with it. So it's, it, you know, and it, you can swim and climb mountains and stuff like that and dance and so on. You can do things with it. But just it does kind of take some of the the, uh, the gloss off of it. <laughs> you recognise this is where it's going. So are you prepared to leave it? Are you prepared? Can you accept that? Yeah. And intellectually, one kind of recognises it's going to die. Emotionally, it's very hard to really recognise your body is not 
yours, you know, you're going to leave it or it's going to leave you. It's not going to be the way you want it to be. It's going to not do what you want it to do. Hmm? You know, and it's not even dying. You know, I remember I broke my arm a few years ago, my right arm, and just trying to learn to eat and write with my left hand. I have this frustration, this thing, this lump of meat here with bones in it that I rely upon. And it wouldn't do it. It wouldn't do anything. Just, you know, and it's quite adjusting to, to, you know, to, to learn to get along without it for a while. I've got it back again now. But uh, the feeling of disorientation that can come. So I guess when the, the story is that when the Bodhisattva saw this, he, it really shook him up, realizing he was still in his youth. You know, this is, this is where it goes in terms of time. And then he, he saw what's called a summoner. Summoner means a recluse, someone who's gone forth. Or what does that mean? It means they've, uh, they've changed direction, essentially. And one way of talking about that change of direction is you could say it's a change from the life which is geared to the, the, the visual, tactile, you know, the sense realm, which is, which is based upon that particular way of looking at things through the senses, in which things like, you know, how you dress and make sense and make, are meaningful, and we have that, and that has a meaning, what we see is meaningful in that way. Mm. What we touch, what we taste, whether, you know, the particular flavors have their meanings and they're pleasant, enjoyable, and so on. But uh, he changed from that, that channel to, to the, another channel, which is just seeing the impermanent nature of things, the changeable nature of things, which is also true. And we can all see that. And he's changing it to that. As if... You know, and the summoner is someone who's really understood or been hit by these other three signs and changed, changed their direction. They're not moving in terms of the sensory world. They're also not moving in terms of time. Now, you see, time, when you look at it, it goes from birth, maturity, aging, death. It doesn't go the other way around. No one starts old and gets young. It's going one way, and everybody goes that way. That's the time line, isn't it? And most of our lives we're moving from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, moving in time. And in time there's a sense of uh, new things coming, old things passing away, getting on, and movement in time is either we're progressing, going up, or going down. And most of the time we go up a bit, and down a bit, and up a bit, and down a bit, and up a bit, and down a bit, down a bit and down a bit and up a bit and down a bit and you know go like that. It moves along like it doesn't. Nobody ever goes steadily up and 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 up. There's really ups and downs, and and then when you look at it, you you begin to recognise even when it's going up most of the time, then we have these big downers of separation from the loved. Uh, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, becoming separated from me, losing things. And degeneration and and death passing away. So, wow, you know. So that movement in time is a movement of a lot of change, a lot of pleasure, pain, 
uncertainty, success, failure, praise, some good things, bad things. It's kind of moving and you've got to keep juggling it to try and get it to shift in the, towards the positive movement in time, towards a better in time. And, uh, you know, most people have some success in that and yet we recognize it's very partial. And comprehending these three signs, aging, sickness, death, as someone has someone said, well, is there another direction? Yeah. And there's a different movement. And the movement, we might say, is a movement in terms of inner space. So instead of moving forwards in time, we're just wide, deepening, widening in our own inner space. We're developing and deepening and widening in our inner space. Which means instead of uh, the future or, or, or accomplishment or getting somewhere or what we're going to be, where are we now? Where am I now? Where am I now? Is the continual question. As the waves of time and sensuality break over us, as the senses of success and failure, happiness, pleasure, displeasure, as those keep happening to us, we stay in one spot, feeling those and letting them pass through. And as you do so, you get wider, you get more tolerant, you get more equanimous, you get more peaceful, you get less rattled by the changes of things because you establish a firm foundation and you let things move through you. And then life actually... This process makes you a lot stronger and deeper than if you were just moving with it all the time. Mm-hmm. So they've changed the direction to that. You know, someone, someone who's done that, turned around. And because of that, they've been able to let go of the... And, and in tandem with that is a sense of letting go of the the pull of pleasure, the, the push of pain, the enticement of, of praise, the, the irritation of blame. They've been able to kind of let that pass through them rather than be fixated or pinned by it. Mm-hmm. These are called the worldly, worldly dhammas. This is what most of us are moving on you know, all the time. And you see with these, these dhammas that... Uh, Although the agreeable ones are, are indeed agreeable, um, they don't, it doesn't last very long. You have happy birthday, and okay, I have a happy birthday next day. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> Christmas, well, yeah. You get the, the little bursts, and then you go back to, to square one again. You don't get a permanent increase. So, and, then, uh, and then you can still feel a blame and pain. You could be happy all your life and then get terrible toothache and all the happiness you've had for the last 50 years doesn't build up to preserve you against the pain of a toothache is it <laughs> you can't you can't can't invest in it it just it just goes immediately yeah. so though these are very powerful currents they really are very superficial they do they do if we stay in that channel we're indeed moved around by them, just as a, as a, if you're a fly will be moved on the, if they sit on the surface of the stream, they'll be moved by that. It's a very powerful flow, a very powerful current. Uh, but if you go deeper and, and anchor yourself in the bed of the river, you don't move. Things rush through you. Things keep passing, but you stay steady. 
And as you stay steady, you, you also become less interested in those pulls and pushes. You, you get emotionally more dispassionate towards it. In other words, oh, this is just this, this is just that. Uh, so there is that cooling of the sensory realm. And of course, if that's all there was, you say, well, okay, well, let's do one. We just all poke our eyes out, you know. <laughs> that would stop that one, wouldn't it? Or if, if, you know, drop dead tomorrow, get it over with. <laughs> Don't go through another 50 years of this, however long it is. <laughs> you know, surely a blind person would have an advantage, or a deaf person would have an advantage. But no, it's not about not having the senses, it's about that in order to let go of the, not the senses themselves aren't the problem, it's the pull, the pull into them. And if, and what it takes for relinquishment is not shutting off the senses so much as finding an inner axis or an inner ground or an inner strength that means you can see, you can touch, you can taste, but you're not pulled. You've got something there like an inner quality of strength that holds you. And that inner strength isn't just strong, it's also happy. So this isn't just a matter of gritting your teeth and resisting life. It's a matter of having a source of strength and well-being that means, you know, the next this thing is just not really interesting for me. Mm. You know, the the latest gadget is not really that exciting (coughs) or interesting. It's just a thing because you've got a greater source of strength and happiness in yourself. So the two go together. Relinquishment only becomes possible when one has the fulfilment. And the fulfilment only becomes possible when you do the relinquishing. <laughs> you know, you've got to let go of one to get the other, and yet you can't really let go of the other, first one until you've got the other. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. So often the, the going forth is a very uh, precarious experience because one doesn't sort of suddenly switch off one channel and go blazing into the other. You know, from from one position completely into the other position, there's a gradual process, and that gradual process is quite a uh, a rocky and revealing experience. As you see. this is why, it, and in that sense of being having one's one's instincts and impulses checked, and feeling that they're sometimes bleak or fed up or bored or pointless with it all. This is why we need the devotion to keep us going when our sense of uh, willpower and, and even in, you know, intellectual interest definitely wanes. <laughs> and devotion is a lovely kind of a soft, uh, we say like a female feminine quality of, of heart that sustains us you know, when some of the more uh, other forms seem to lose, lose interest in them or lose, lose power in them. So that devotion isn't just a ceremony or a, or a movement of the heart. It means uh, it's carried out as a sense of, of really com- you devote yourself. It's not just like offering incense. You devote yourself. You give yourself to it. And this is again is what it's meant by going forth, really giving yourself to the Dhamma. And when the Buddha went forth, there wasn't some organized religion he went forth into. There weren't nice monasteries you can go and get training from. 
So there wasn't a sort of established sangha. You could look around and see your brothers and sisters who were cheering you on. Yeah, it was very much going forth. So going forth doesn't isn't about that. I mean, that naturally will definitely help and support. But the going forth is is much more essential than that in a way. It's something that you can all do in heart. You know, and you can all understand the meaning of that. And there are certain um, meditative or reflective or spiritual activities that you undertake to do that, to make that possible. The first of these is establishing a firm foundation in yourself. The Buddha had to work all this out on his own. But fortunately we we can inherit what he learned. The first thing is a sense of a firm foundation in yourself. What can you trust? What can you rely upon in yourself? And so we all have some sense of faith or confidence that keeps us going. Some sense of we'll be okay tomorrow. But often people place their faith in things that aren't that reliable. The economy, the government, uh, you know, the partner, husband, wife, whatever, will let you down. <coughs> so then you feel disappointed and broken-hearted. Or in some it's a teacher who then isn't worthy of it. So the real uh, sense of, of sending forth one's faith or establishing faith in what you can really, really rely upon, then uh, Buddha said you have to have, uh, take a refuge, be a refuge to yourself, use the Dhamma as a refuge. Mm. Take your own Dhamma, which means your own ability to, to see things directly, immediately, not caught up in time, not following time. Mm. Something that, so this is the way the Dhamma is described, that which you can experience directly in yourself. Visible, not about time, not about moving forward. So you might say, you know, we start to enter Dhamma like, who am I? What is here? Where, where am I? What am I about? And you look at all the things in your, your body, in your mind, you see this is changing, this is shifting, this is moving around, that's good sometimes. And then you begin to sense through that examination and through that practice, you begin to sense a quality of stable awareness that is actually able to, to, to witness all this. And we carry and our, our commitment to that, we commit ourselves to that with our bodies sitting still, which is a very unusual thing for people to do. We take it for granted when we meditate, we sit still. You think, this is a really strange thing to do. Nobody else sits still. <laughs> people are not, human beings are not about sitting still. They're normally about moving around, talking, eating, doing things. But we do this sitting still bit, you know, because it's a way, it's a devotional act of like committing your body to this process of just witnessing in this, in this sense of stillness, just witnessing all the changes that are going on, the feelings, the sensations that come up, the instincts to move, the wanting to scratch your nose or whatever it is, and then learning how to find this sense of stillness in the way you sit, and from that, a sense of a clear, aware, uh, clear quality of awareness arising. Awareness that's not bound up with pleasure or pain. 
awareness is not bound up with success or failure. It's just, you know, it's, it's that sense of spaciousness. Something seems to open up. So as we pay attention <clears throat> intimately, even to the sensations of your, your body or the thought process of, of your mind or the emotional ups and downs of the heart, as you pay attention to them, the quality of attention becomes wider and more encompassing. We call it awareness. So normally you pay attention to a particular point. Don't you? you see a particular thing and you look at that and you do something with it. Well, awareness is more like paying attention to the thing but then deepening that attention to include how you feel about it, your awareness of it, your, your reactions and responses to it. So you, it's a very holistic form. You can sense, here's the, the sensation in my leg, and here's not wanting it to be there, and then there's the, also the, the worry about what I can do about it. And then beyond that, there's a sense of just, well, this is what's happening now. You know, some basic recognition where you get... So that as you, as you develop that, this awareness quality becomes wider. And what it does is it tends to soften a lot of the, the jumpiness and the instinctiveness and the reactiveness of our minds. So you, you, you think a thought and instead of being moved by it, you think, that's a thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have an opinion arise in your mind about the way somebody should be or shouldn't be. That's an opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have a you know a physical feeling oh, it feels difficult or unpleasant mm-hmm. and then maybe you get in a mood of uh, worry or doubt there's worry and doubt so instead of that jump, react or stop it, check it, blame it feel guilty about it you shouldn't think that thought instead of that jump you get a, a space you know and this sense of space starts to soften those impulses. You're not quite so brittle, not so jumpy, not so reactive. You get more hmm, contemplative. It's like that now. And then from that quieter space, you can then make a more considered response. So the edginess of the mind starts to soften and widen. You get more broad-minded. So as you pay attention... And you see how reactive the mind is. And you feel the, the agitation of those reactions, the jumping to conclusions, the jumping to opinions, the blaming oneself, the jumping into, onto other people. And just you stop doing that. You know, your mind becomes more peaceful, malleable. It softens. But it doesn't become squashy and, and mushy. It just becomes more broad and uh, flexible. So the qualities of, of a developed mind are it's flexible, it's malleable, it's pliable, it's joyful. Yeah? So the interesting thing is just meeting this edginess in ourselves, our, our feeling of fear, our feeling of having failed, our feeling of guilt, our feeling of anger, our feeling of wanting and greed, and just checking and pausing relaxing around that breathing into it just softening around it you find there's actually something else arises which is a sense of great 
fitness, pliability, the mind becomes grander through meeting some of these rather difficult experiences that we have. So what occurs is almost like a transformation whereby our reflexes, our instincts, our habits start to shift, they start to melt down. It's like it's a transmutation of that that jumpy nervous energy. It starts to melt down and you just become... And as it melts down, it turns into this quality of brightness and and joyfulness and and calm. It's one of the things you could notice about uh, um, meditators. Particularly, I've noticed it in terms of uh, some of the, the monks I've known how they could sit still, they're not fidgeting. And, uh, you know, I'd meet Ajahn Chah, for example, <clears throat> and he could sit and talk with people six, seven hours, and he's, he didn't change his mood, he didn't get more excited or tired, it just stayed level. <laughs> it was level, it was spacious, it was steady, he wasn't getting excited one way or another he wasn't looking like he wanted to get off the seat just quite at ease with all of it and he didn't change temperature he didn't go oh no oh, yeah that's great and oh terrible but just <laughs> it's emotionally level and this had a very powerful effect on people because what it what it did was that people began to he was almost like his space offered them space just their ability to be heard brought them in touch with their own quality of awareness. They started to think, oh, yeah, well, that's nothing so desperately bad after all. It took the edge off their own edginess. And this is the power of that, of that awareness. It's not, even though we cultivate it in ourselves, it's not something you can hoard for yourself because it doesn't, it doesn't have boundaries. And the more you develop it, the wider it gets. So it becomes something that other people can take refuge in, can feel comfort with, can be heard with, can feel uh, loved, appreciated, recognized. So it's a very beautiful, attractive quality, but it's not trying to attract anybody. (laughs) It's not trying to pull people in. It just does because of its own innate power and joy. And this is a sense of... uh, the realization and the fruition of awareness that becomes possible through paying attention. Through paying attention to a lot of the places where we, in ourselves, we, we, we jump, we blur, we shrug things off, we look the other way, I can't stand this, I want something else, oh, don't bother me now, I'm busy. Paying attention to those places where we get jumpy and, and nervous and tight-edged, you know, where something happens and you find yourself getting really heavy and condemning something, you know, dismissing something, suddenly, you know, you you, you get hard-edged and then hmm, pay attention to that. As you can see in the the world in general, in media in general, there are all these... these, uh, Topics are thrown out that get people going. <coughs> Headlines, you know, ministering sex scandal. You're disgusting, outrageous, ministering sex scandal. Rah, you know, 
And then next line is, Chelsea win cup. Chelsea win cup. Great, Chelsea win cup. Next line, Iraq, you know, crisis in Iraq. Crisis in Iraq. Oh, those stupid Iraqis. And then famine in Ethiopia. Oh, famine in Ethiopia. And then the next line is, new iPad invented. Oh, iPad invented. (laughs) You know, every one of them is there to get you jumping in one way or another. You look at this thing, it's just jump, 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 jump. You know, button, 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 button. Push, push, push. Yeah. And you can see that kind of this stirring of the mind into outrage and, uh, and fear and greed and blaming and regret and condemning. Wow. You know. And you just sit in your chair looking at a newspaper. <laughs> and you go through this whole psychodrama about the world. Wow. You know. Oof, that was a lot of movement, wasn't it? <laughs> And of course, the thing is that when you, those buttons, they're not just there when the newspaper arrives, they're, they're, they get planted in us. We develop all those. So, you know, when you sit still, you find after a while, some of those buttons start firing. You remember something. You shouldn't have talked to me like that. How dare you think he is? You know, or something worrying you. They're never going to do this. I can't get that right. What am I, are people going to think of me? But I don't know if I can make this, you know, little worry button. Just like, you know, um, you see it's something happening in the newspapers. So all these buttons are there. And when one of them goes, we get activated by it. And we spend, put a lot of energy, you know, our energy gets, gets leaked into that. I know people who've had a particular worrying thought for like 25 years. And every now and then they take it out and just give it another spin. And go around with that worrying thought for one more time about how they didn't and shouldn't and never will, you know, or regret or guilt, and take it out again for another ride for 25 years. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and you go round and round on it, not being able to just do what it takes to lift off and go, wow, look at that, you know, like it's, like it's an independent force of its own. You look at it and think, <laughs> so that, that requires widening widening if you like call it widening your psychological space so you're not so you know, jammed up against these reactions doesn't mean we don't have them but we've got a little more space around them where that, there can be a softening and quietening of the mind as you do so then the, this innate quality of clarity and awareness and groundedness starts to build up and you feel, start to feel glad you feel relief and you feel you know where you are you finally know where you are because you're not all that stuff that moves you're not all that stuff that's running around going crazy you're not all that stuff that's demanding this and that yeah that happens, but you're not it. You know, you can you can try to engage with it in a positive from a positive position, but you're not harrowed by it. You're not you're not chased by it. So then, this is this uh, this process of deepening in in space and widening in terms of your psychological space and coming out of the current of time. Now, as we we do this in contemplative life, you see that uh, you know we can first of all feel, wow, the world is really on fire and dangerous, and there's so much stuff going on. 
But then the more you, the more you deepen and widen it, you realize actually there's not so much happening. And it's not really out there, it's in here. <laughs> you know? It's nothing to do with sights and sounds, really. It's, it's to do with certain fundamental uh, instincts. You know. One of these is this instinct for security and permanence and stability. Because we have this tremendous instinct and unconscious reflex towards stability, Security, permanence. We want to find a safe place, a good place, a reliable place, trustworthy place, people we can rely upon, things are going to last, good quality stuff that's not going to wear out, relationships are going to be lasting and meaningful, a nice house, a stable place, and so forth. You know? And then with ourselves, we want to find a place where we feel steady and, and calm. We have that. Uh, but uh, that, that, that instinct, that reflex is continually meeting this world of change, of things not being steady and stable, of things passing, of things breaking down, of new things arising that we hadn't expected. So there's this feeling of something, frustration or confusion or desperation or where do I find it, where I go out, and then the busyness starts, trying to find the thing I can you know, feel secure in. Bank or well, money goes funny, doesn't it nowadays? So, safe as you say, bank, bank safe as houses, safe as money in the bank was the expression until <coughs> you put your money in RSB, RBS, you know, <laughs> it's suddenly boom, gone. <laughs> so, where is it? So, when we have that, that instinct and it's looking around. We feel frustrated, we feel worried, we feel anxious, we feel insecure, we feel people are cheating us, letting us down, the world isn't the way it should be, and we start to get greedy and hang on. We hang on to things, we're going to make it last, you know, I'm going to hold this, so we get that kind of grasping. And the Buddha says, you can't actually beat this one, because we're wired for that, but what you can do is you can find security in something that is stable. Yeah. And this is the quality of awareness. Yeah. You have to open it up, of course, unpack it, and exercise it. It's a potential. But he says, this is what you can find stability in, this quality of awareness. And the more stable it gets, then the less and less it, it gets uh, moved around by sights and sounds and incidents, and eventually it loses it loses the attachment to that, and this is called release or non-attachment. So you can you can just have awareness with nothing happening in it, apart from the quality of awareness. The other thing that we all seek is some kind of happiness. Every creature seek security, every creature seeks something to feel good about. Food, warmth, comfort, a nest, uh, you know, sense pleasure, uh, something we can feel good about. Other, you know, happiness, enjoyment, entertainment. But you can't really beat this one either. But he said, I, I show you the way to the, the most fulfilling, deepest happiness. And it's this way. 
You know, it's not that you got it wrong, it's just you got, you got the right message, but you're looking in the wrong direction. Things that will give you some happiness, but never quite enough, and often a lot of struggle with it. So that, you turn that instinct towards what is, for your lasting happiness. And first of all, this is that's kind of difficult. Yeah. Because our sensitivity has got, gets numbed. We're not that tuned in. It's like sense, sense activity, a lot of uh, happiness is really quite um, stimulating. And the sense of stimulation means it, it tends to numb the sensitivity. Yeah. So we get a little bit, and we look, and also it sends us in, in a direction looking to the sense bases. So it takes a lot of training to turn it around to sensitivity towards being aware and the stability of the mind, and you get a feeling of relief, of the pressure being off, of the clamoring turning down, of the agitation quieting down. You start to first, you get a sense of some relief, you get a sense of calm, you get a sense of ease, and you get a sense of gladness, and you get a sense of deep contentment. It's like that, it moves like it's a gentle, quiet, deep happiness. Uh, like a very slow, low-burning flame rather than a fierce flame, but it lasts. Yeah. And that's why people cultivate it, train this way. They're not doing it from some ideological position, but really fulfilling the basic human needs that we all have. This is the going forth. But it does require this uh, this step that we all have to take when we practice of in a way moving outside of what we've known you know every time you sit in meditation it's a chance to put aside the day put aside the known put aside the routine put aside the assumptions check how you think about yourself really inquire into how you feel about yourself don't adopt any of it and the more you can keep that sense of really going forth from the known, from the assumed, from the expectations, from the doubts, then you start to you know, find your, your way. And this means, actually, first of all, meeting and acknowledging all this stuff, you know, the, the, the pressures and the agitation of the mind. So this is often the, 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 the bit that's the most challenging. And... Uh, you know, when we meditate, then it's often we're actually meeting some of those places and trying to negotiate our way through them. So you can, in a way, you can summarize and you can, you can simplify the whole process of, of going forth. I mean, it take, take, can take 25 years or so to do so, but into three, three radical steps. The first one is paying attention. Paying attention. And you look at that phrase, it means attention, doesn't mean assumption, it doesn't mean any kind of inclination apart from to just attend. And you pay it, you give it, which means you know, you're gonna give that to something. What's what do you want to give your attention to? If you consider attention to be a very powerful thing, because what we attend to is gonna fill us up, isn't it? What we give our attention to is gonna affect us. What do you want to give your attention to? You know that? Oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, well, no, that's not going to do me any good. 
that's obsession rather than attention. <laughs> so paying attention. And, and the first thing to pay attention to is where do you get sense of stability? In your heart, in your self-respect, in your sense of values, and then in, in your body. So it really becomes multidimensional, both uh, self-respect, a sense of uprightness, and then the physical aspect of it. You've done good, and then you're breathing in and out. You get that sense of stability in yourself. So a lot of meditation is just sometimes reflecting on the, the, what we've done today and recognizing we've made mistakes and you know, putting that aside, determining to do better, and also evaluating and appreciating the good we have done. And then as you, as you do that, you begin to clear some of the mental and emotional movements and develop that sense of appreciation of Dhamma. And then you can find yourself relaxing, sitting quietly, and then deepening into the body. And the body provides a tremendous resource of, of stable energy. You know, a live body does anyway. <laughs> that's, what, that's what goes when it dies. That's why it's so radically different. Because a live body is a source of tremendous radiant energy. And when it's dead, that's gone. That's how come dead bodies are so dead. Why live bodies are so precious. Yeah, because of this. And in this is this tremendous capacity to stabilize the mind, stabilize the emotions, calm and, and ease one's heart. So the Buddha taught this through mindfulness of breathing, where you can begin to spread that energy through your whole body till you feel really soft and pleasant and relaxed. So this is paying attention. And don't, don't nod off, you know, so you start to believe in your thoughts, wait a minute, what's going on? And you start to get a, an opinion about someone, wait a minute, what's happening? You start to get yourself, find yourself going habitual, or habitual moaning in your mind, what's going on? Stop, check that one. You know, or the assumption, I should be this, I ought to do that, I better do that, I never do this. Who's that? Check it out. Who's saying that? Why is that voice in my mind? Who is it? Yeah. Sometimes you do that, it stops. You know, like, you know, somebody's actually called my bluff. Because there are these loose programs <coughs> running. So when you pay attention, just the power of attention starts to, to blow away the mists and the fogs of confusion. And you keep that, and you learn how to pay attention and what, and be discriminative about what you attend to. You know, don't let your mind be captured by everything that's going on. Focus on what's going to be for your welfare. Stabilize. As you do so, you find that the mind can become uh, sees its its agitation and habits and starts to relax. So it softens becomes uh, not sloppy, but more rounded, less brittle, less reactive, and become more equanimous, and uh, warm-hearted. And then widening means you, you start to be able to feel a sense of space in yourself. And many people find, you know, they don't have time. There's no time to do this, there's no time to do that, there's never enough space for my life, I'm crowded out, too busy, 
And you know, you think, wow, what's happened? What's happened? Look at the feeling of time. What, not just the, what it says on the clock. Look at the feeling of it. The feeling of time in your body. And isn't it like a, a tightness and a push? Pressure? It's two o'clock. I could be late. It's, the dinner's five minutes late. Hurry up. The television program's in ten minutes' time. I've got to do this by Friday. It's got a push, isn't it? Time pushing. Or it's, it's hanging back. Like How long is this going to go on for? Like a wait. Time is always a sense of, of something that's crushing you, <laughs> squeezing you, yeah? pushing you forward or pulling you back. And isn't it wonderful whenever that sense of time, from, even for a moment, stops and you... For ten seconds, if you had all the time in the world for ten seconds, just to be out of that pressure... And you suddenly, when you're out of that pressure of time, how wonderful things are, how bright, how unique, how funny things are, how lovable things are, because your mind isn't being crushed. So sometimes people have these experiences. You know, they go to a, on a cruise and they look over the sea at, at moonlight, and suddenly the time drops away, and they, wow. I've had a spiritual experience. Oh, how do I get another one? <laughs> I look at it again; it doesn't work <laughs> because we've come back into the, the, you know, the mind has got clamped again, isn't it, by greed, by desire? But when the sense of that, the mind opening, suddenly, you know, there's a sense of space and tenderness and warmth, and all these resources of the mind become available that are there already, but we, we squashed them out. We squashed it all down with our desire to get something, get somewhere and have something and our worry that we weren't good enough. It's crushed it all. So we're not trying to cut things off the mind or even put things into it, but just let it unfold. So you get a sense of widening, unfolding. And then you can begin to realise you can include your whole life in that. You know, life, uh, the happiness and the unhappiness, the crisis and the joy, is something you can you can be with. You can witness it. You can open up to it. You're not frightened of it. You're not desperate about it. You're not squashed by it all. And then it's, this is a truly lovely way to to feel this unfolding, this flowering. And this is the flowering dhamma. So dhamma is not a religion not a philosophy, it's this beautiful flowering of, of awareness that's immediate, directly perceivable, not delayed in time, encouraging you. Once you get a whiff of it, you know, you want to have more, you want to, that's right. Yeah. I met a, a man when I was up in Newcastle, this chap came in, I was teaching in the Harnham Monastery and lunchtime this fellow came in with his wife who was Thai and she'd been meditating in Birmingham, they lived in Birmingham and he'd gone along to meditate and he said, you know, all this meditation stuff, God, sitting there wriggling, struggling God, mind going crazy sitting there for an hour or so it was really tough he said and then 
for a minute, I experienced something I'd never experienced before. I want to do more of it. <laughs> I said, a minute? You had a whole minute? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where I come from, that's bragging. <laughs> And yet, you know, all of that, the struggles of the physical form, the body, the pains, the sense restraint, the worries and doubts, and yet you have a minute of something else, you know, it's worth it. This is, this is of another order. This is of another dimension. This is of another realm, you know. And that's, you know, a touch of that. And you, it's like the, the, the mind knows there's an unfolding. And when it starts to do that, you want, it goes there. And you know, you get the confidence to keep you going. And then you feel really, uh, a sense, that's what devotion comes from. The feeling of you're just offering, you know, into this process where it's going to be, you know, meeting things, struggling, difficulty with trying to keep it going. And yet there's that taste of freedom that keeps you on, you know, feeling grateful and, and offering yourself to it. And as the Buddha said, if you really want to express your devotion, your gratitude and, and respect for the Buddha, then the best way to do this, he said, is though you practice. Whatever monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen practice the Eightfold Path, these are the people who are honoring and venerating the Buddha in a truly useful way. <laughs> this is true devotion. And it's, so it's not empty, it's not ceremonial, it's... Uh, <coughs> You know, we can create ceremonies that, that highlight it, uh, and yet uh, it's livable, and it's for our welfare and for the welfare of others. So, offer this for your reflection today. <laughs>